title of my sermon is Revelation and Worship, and the big idea, the proper response to God's revelation in Jesus Christ is, is worship. I want to take us back to a very important date in my life, the, the second most important date. It was um, April 30th, 2011, at 2 p.m. in Plano, Texas. I married my beautiful bride, Haley. And, you know, on, on the wedding day, um, I guess we were pretty typical. Uh, I wasn't really allowed to see Haley for most of the day. She was busy uh, with her friends and taking pictures. And so, you know, when, when you're standing up there, I have my best friends to my left, a pastor who was a friend. And again, I'm just, I'm waiting for those back doors to open. I can't wait to see my beautiful bride. And at that, at that moment, it was my beautiful bride-to-be. We weren't married yet, of course. And so, the music comes on, the doors open, and in walks Haley in her beautiful dress, looking so beautiful. I was going to say fine, but I should have. Uh, and, and if you watch our wedding video, uh, what you'll see is as she's coming towards me, I'm crying like a baby. And then I just look up and say, thank you, Lord. And I kind of mouth it, I guess. And I was in awe. I was in awe of my bride, her beauty. I know I'm embarrassing Haley, but I was also in awe of God's goodness. Uh, I was thanking the Lord for this wonderful gift, my wife, and, uh, and so I, I praised. I praised my king. That revelation resulted in praise, and if you have beheld Christ in the word of God, if you've heard the gospel, you've heard the good news that Jesus died for sinners. You've beheld the king. You've trusted in Jesus. What is the appropriate response? But praise, right? Revelation results in praise or worship. The purpose of divine revelation is worship. Well, we've taken a little break from Exodus. We've been in Matthew's gospel for the past two weeks. Uh, We started in Matthew 1 verse 1. I want to review. I think it's important that we do that. Uh, I'm trying to keep a, uh, a single theme in mind. Um, I hope that's been clear. As I mentioned before, Matthew's gospel is apologetic in nature. That doesn't mean that Matthew was writing to say, I'm sorry for something. Apologetics refers to the defense of the Christian faith. Matthew writes to defend the truthfulness of of Christianity, right? He writes to persuade his Jewish audience of the truthfulness of the Christian message, namely that Jesus is in fact the long-awaited Messiah promised by God to bring rescue to the world. The major impetus of Scripture culminating in Jesus is that of promise and fulfillment. In Matthew does a really good job of highlighting this movement, this beautiful rhythm in the early chapters of his gospel. And so I want to go back to Matthew 1.1, and I want us to review, again, this rhythm, promise, fulfillment. What God promises, he brings to fulfillment, and the climax of Scripture is the coming of Jesus. And in Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen. So, what have we seen thus far in Matthew's Gospel? Matthew 1.1. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, right out the gate, 
Okay? Matthew brings attention to Jesus' identity as the Christ, the anointed one, the promised king from the line of David, the son of Abraham, through whom God's rescue for the world would come. The two most important promises in the Old Testament, God's promises to Abraham and God's promise to David, are coming to fulfillment. They're culminating. They're coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. Matthew wants us to see that. What God promised to do, he's doing. He's doing it in the person of who? Jesus. All right. We continue in chapter 1, Matthew 1, 18 and 20, and we have mentioned the powerful activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that significant? Because, as promised throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would be instrumental in identifying the promised king to come. You'll know the king when he comes because the Holy Spirit will come upon him. Who's active in Matthew 1? The Spirit. And also, the Old Testament talks about the Spirit being instrumental in bringing about the new exodus or the new creation, the time of God's gracious and glorious salvation. So again, I'm going to keep this very simple. Old Testament says when the Spirit comes, salvation's coming. The Spirit shows up in Matthew. What does it tell us? Salvation has come. Oh, this is big. Matthew 121. We have the language of Jesus is going to forgive sin. He's going to save his people from their sin. Why is that significant? Well, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 spoke of the provision of the forgiveness of sin. The great impediment keeping an unholy people away from a holy God, our sin. God is going to deal with that, right? The time of salvation, what's going to happen? Sin is going to be forgiven. God's people saved from their sin. How is Jesus introduced? He's the guy. He's the one that is going to save his people from their sin. So again, salvation from sin is being announced. That was promised. God's doing it. Oh, and then God with us. That's everything. God with us. That's Matthew 1.23. He's going to be Emmanuel, quoting from Isaiah 7, which means God with us. If you read the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel, both books speak of the return of the Lord to rescue his people. God's going to come. He's going to save the day. He's going to bear forth his holy arm. He's going to fight for his people. When he comes, rescue's coming. How is Jesus announced? He's Emmanuel, God with us. And then what we're going to see today, Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, Gentiles. Now, what are Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. Gentiles come to worship Jesus, the true king. The Old Testament looks ahead to the accomplishment of God's worldwide rescue mission through the promised king to come. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 42, all speak of the time of the king, the time of rescue as a time when the nations are going to come. The nations are going to be saved. And who are the first ones on the scene? you got three wise men. Well, it could be more. But we got wise men who come, most likely from Arabia, to worship Jesus. All the hopes and dreams of God's people found throughout the Old Testament, found throughout Scripture, were finally coming to fruition in and around the person of Jesus. 
All right, let's go back to our blind date. And if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry. I'll bring you up to speed. What's a blind date? It's when a friend, hopefully a good friend, sets you up, right? And so let me just quickly paint the picture. So imagine you're a guy, you got a good friend from college, loves you, your brother's in Christ. He says, hey man, listen, there's this girl that I grew up with. She's beautiful, she loves Jesus, I want to set you up. Okay, cool. Hey, Friday night. Whoa, 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 Friday night. Oh yeah, it's already done. Friday night, Texas Roadhouse. Yes! She's going to show up at 7 o'clock. She's got red hair, green eyes. She's five foot nine. She's going to have on a blue sweater. The day arrives. It's Friday night. You get there early, bro. You're sitting there a little nervous. And in walks in, young lady, five foot nine, red hair, green eyes, blue sweater. What does that tell you? She's here. She's arrived, right? The blind date has arrived. The time of the date has come. Who speaks of a date that the time of the date has come? But that, that's what her presence, her arrival, her coming through those doors. Again, she fits the description, everything promised, what she would look like. She shows up, the time of the date has arrived. In the same way, the titles Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham, ascribed to Jesus. The activity of the Holy Spirit, the mention of salvation from sin, and again, the mention that in Jesus, God is with us, all declare the great and glorious time of salvation. It's arrived. It's come in the person of Jesus. Amen? That's what we're seeing in Matthew 1 and 2. God's faithful. He promises rescue. Jesus comes. Rescue comes. God is faithful. Promise fulfillment. Back to our passage. As Christians, we know that Jesus was revealed. But questions remain. And there's four of them I want to answer this morning. Number one, how was Jesus revealed? How was he revealed? Number two, why? Why was Jesus revealed? Why? Number three, how did people respond to this revelation? Okay? And responses vary, don't they? Some received his revelation with great excitement, joy, Others, not so much. And we'll look at the varying responses. Number four, and that is going to be the focus, what might we take away from the proper response to this revelation? Number one, how was Jesus revealed? Now, before we can worship the Lord, the Lord must be revealed, right? Because what precedes what comes before worship? Revelation. You can't worship someone you don't know. So before Jesus can be worshipped, he must be revealed. The first question is, how was he revealed? What do we see in our passage in relation to Revelation? Who and what bears witness to the Savior King? Now, several things catch our attention here. I want to point to four. Four things here. Number one, nature. Nature. If you're taking notes, you can fill in that blank. Nature bears witness to... To Jesus, God reveals the Son of God, the promised King, by nature. Verses 2 and 9. For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. <clears throat> After listening to the King, verse 9, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So what was this astronomical phenomenon? I had a professor in seminary, Colin Nichol. PhD from Cambridge, really sharp guy, Irish. So again, when he taught, I just love the accent. 
Uh, if you have an ESV study Bible, he wrote the study notes for Thessalonians, first and second. Really good guy, great scholar. He recently, and I say recently, within the last 10 years, wrote a book on this astronomical phenomenon with a well-known Christian astronomer. Pick it up. I haven't read it yet. But he, he tries to answer the question. I, I've read summaries of the book. What was this star? Have you ever wondered, what, what, was, what was it that the Magi were following that led them to Jesus? What was happening? Some have suggested a comet, a guiding angel, maybe that appeared as a star, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. That's what I think, not really. A theophany, that, that makes sense, a theophany like what we've seen in Exodus, right? The burning pillar of fire that guided Israel by night. Or, because God is God, he can do what he wants, some newly created astronomical phenomenon to guide the wise man to the king. What we learn in scripture is that God created the cosmos, he controls the cosmos, and he reveals himself through the cosmos, Right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. God uses the cosmos, his creation, to bear witness to his son, to reveal his son, so that his son would be worshipped. Because revelation leads to worship. Second, people. Christ is revealed by people. Verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to do what? Come to worship him. Some of the first ones to bear witness to and respond appropriately to Jesus are Gentiles. And this is incredibly fascinating given the original audience of Matthew, right? He's writing to Jews, and the first ones to bear witness to the Christ are these pagans, these Gentile wise men. What are they? We'll talk more about that later. So we got nature revealing Jesus, people revealing Jesus. Oh, number three, the Word. The Word. That's verses four to six. <clears throat> and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. Now what's he doing? He's pointing to Scripture. It's written by the prophet. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is a reference to Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. Here we see God's faithfulness. He promised to send the Savior King, and the Savior King had come. What does that tell us about God? He promised to send the Savior King. The Savior King has come. God is? He's faithful. And we're going to come back to those passages here shortly. All right, so <clears throat> Christ revealed nature, people, the Word, Number four, angelic testimony. We're actually going to go back to Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. It's amazing. Jesus revealed through people, nature, the word, angels. Matthew 1, 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, from their sins. All right, so Jesus, the Savior King, was revealed by nature, people, the Word, and angelic testimony. What does this teach us about God? Namely the fact that God has revealed himself at various levels before, not good people, but sinful mankind. Three things here. Number one, God is relational. He reveals himself to be known relationally by his creatures. The fact that God makes himself known teaches us that God is relational. Number two, God is loving. Did he have to do this? Did God have to reveal himself? Now, God's revelation is first and foremost for his glory, but it also takes into account others, namely us. His revelation is for the good of others, for our ultimate good is to know him. What a loving God that he would make himself known. Amen? So, God is relational. God is loving. God is gracious. God is gracious. Again, God is not obligated to make himself known. The fact that he does is grace. Amen? It's grace. First question, how was Jesus revealed? We saw four things. What were they? Nature, people, the word, angelic testimony. What does this teach us about God? He's relational. He's loving. He's gracious. Number two, why was Jesus revealed? What's the purpose of his revelation? Why did Jesus come? Four things here. Number one, he came to save his people. (laughs) That's what the text says back in Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So why was he revealed? Number one, he came to save his people. And all God's people said, amen. That's everything. He came to save us. Amen? Number two, he came for the nations. We're not Jewish, most of us. We're Gentiles. And he came for the nations. He came for the nations. And this is confirmed by the response of the wise men. Again, these were Gentiles, non-Jews. He came to draw the nations to himself. His people will consist of a people from all nations. Recall Genesis 12.3. What is God's promise to Abraham? Through you, Abe, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And again, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11 Isaiah 60, all carry this theme that Yahweh is for the nations. Again, if you go to the end of our story, Revelation 7, 9, what do we see? A people from every tribe, tongue, and language group gathered around the throne praising the Lamb of God. Again, this reveals the scope of Jesus' saving work. This is what the Old Testament pointed to, an international rescue mission. And this is further confirmed by the title ascribed to Jesus in Matthew 1.1. He is the son of Abraham. God's promise to save the nations coming to fulfillment through who? Through Jesus. Number three, so he came to save his people. He came for the nations. Number three, he came to shepherd his people. He came to shepherd his people. Matthew 2.6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a sweet image. Amen? He came to shepherd his people. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful image ascribed 
to the king to come. He's going to shepherd his people. He came to care for his people, provide for his people, guide his people. And as the good shepherd, he came to lie, lay down his life for the sheep. I mean, that's ultimately, as the good shepherd, what Jesus came to do. Yes, to guide, yes, to protect, but to lay his life down for his sheep. Okay, so verse 6 in Matthew 2 looks back to two Old Testament promises. Micah 5, 2 and verse 4, and then 2 Samuel 5, verse 2. And I want us to quickly delve into these Old Testament passages and seek to understand how they're being used in Matthew. Matthew places the birth of Jesus in the rich tradition of prophetic promise. Again, verse 6. We've heard it many times now. Verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is common. This is common in the New Testament, where a biblical writer will bring together not just one, but sometimes two Old Testament passages and say, hey, listen, these two promises found in the Old Testament, they're coming to fulfillment in who? In Jesus. Mark does it in Mark 1, in his prologue. We're not in Mark today, we're in Matthew. Let me summarize Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. Why are these two OT passages important? Because they speak to, if you're taking notes here, to the lineage, birthplace, vocation, and character of the promised king. And here's what we learn about the promised king in 2 Samuel 5 and Micah 5, 2 and 4. You ready? So again, these two passages speak to the lineage, birthplace, vocation, what he'll do, and the character of the king to come. Well, son of David... Born in Bethlehem, same as David. Ruler, that's his vocation. And in his character, he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. The bringing together of these two Old Testament texts sets the stage for the king to come. He will come from the line of David. That was promised. He will be lowly and gentle. He'll have humble beginnings. And he will be the shepherd king of promise. Now what's common in these two Old Testament passages... Micah 5, 2 Samuel 5, is the emphasis on the coming king's role as a shepherd. And this gets at his character. As the shepherd king, the promised Messiah would rescue, care for, and lead God's people as a shepherd does his sheep. Now, the apparent background here is Ezekiel 34, and I read this last week. I'm going to summarize it now. Ezekiel 34. This wonderful text contains both indictment and promise. Do you remember last week in Ezekiel 34? God indicts the leaders of Israel. Why? Because they're not doing their job. They're bad leaders. They've not taught the word. They've not guided God's people in the word. They've done a terrible job. So what does God do? What does he promise? That's the indictment. Hey, failed leadership, you've done a terrible job. God's people are scattered. God's going to come. God's going to shepherd his people. He's going to gather the scattered and he's going to shepherd them. But that's not all. What else is promised in Ezekiel 34? He's going to raise up a shepherd king from the line of David to shepherd God's people. So which is it? Is God going to come and shepherd or is the shepherd king from David's line going to come and shepherd God's people? And the answer is yes. 
Because the two promises, God coming and the shepherd king coming from the line of David, intersect in the person of Jesus. He is the God king. Amen? Let's talk a little bit more about the common image. Again, 2 Samuel 5, Micah 5, of God, his anointed king as shepherd. Do we see this in the New Testament as well? That Jesus will shepherd? Yeah. John 10, 11. What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And the fact that this image, shepherd, is applied to Jesus speaks to his divinity, right? The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, but Jesus is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd came to do what? To lay down his life for the sheep. Is Jesus a good king? How about Herod? No. Do do you know that there's a couple of intentional contrasts in our passage. One, we're going to see here shortly, Herod and all of Israel, their response to the news of the king coming, and then the wise men. But we're also meant to compare and contrast Herod as king with Jesus as king. And who's the better king? (laughs) Jesus. Andreas Kostenberger writes, a shepherd king would behave very differently than the murderous and cruel Herod. Herod was murderous and cruel, not so Jesus. He is the humble king, the king that came to lay down his life for the sheep. There is no king like Jesus, amen? There's no king like Jesus. No other king has died for his people bearing the full guilt, the weight of our sin and our shame in our place. But Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Is Jesus your king? Is he your king? There's no king like Jesus. Is he your king? You know who we're more like? We're more like Herod, aren't we? (laughs) We are. We're more like Herod, more concerned with our kingdom, our agenda, our glory than God's. Lord, help us. Well, why else did Jesus come? Why else did he come? The last thing here, and hopefully you can say yes with me, it's very clear in the text, what did the wise men do when they came to see, when they finally arrived, what did they do? They worshipped. Jesus came to be worshipped. Amen? He came to be worshipped. And we see that in verse 11 of our passage. Jesus was revealed. And not only that, but his reason for coming was revealed. And that brings us to our third question, number three. How did people respond to this revelation? All right, so there's really two, two responses in our passage. Okay, so you have Herod and all Jerusalem with him, okay, but you also have the wise men. So those are the two groups we're going to look at now. And I want to start with Herod and all Jerusalem. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, this announcement that there was another king, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Why were Herod and others in Jerusalem troubled? Who wants to learn some Greek? None of you. Okay, good, Tyler. Terrasso. They were troubled, terrasso. This word is very significant. It means great emotional anguish, distress. They are freaking out. Why? Why was Herod troubled? It's because Jesus, now get this, presents a great threat to the status quo, doesn't he? Jesus threatens our self-rule. Hey, I'm king. No, you're not. You're not. Herod liked being king, didn't he? 
just like we do. Don't we like ruling our lives? We like being in control. We like being independent. The people of Israel, specifically those in positions of power and prestige, liked things the way they were. They liked the status quo. The announcement, however, of a new king threatened them. It threatened Herod. It threatened those in power. It meant, what did it mean? Hey, there's a new king in town. It meant the sharing of power, or even worse, the end of power for some. The announcement of Jesus as king threatens all, specifically the sinful heart of man that seeks to elevate itself as supreme. That's all of us by nature, right? We like being king. We like glory. We want to exalt ourselves. But I got news for you. We're not king. Jesus is. Jesus is king. What does Herod's response teach us about humanity? We are hard-hearted and naturally want to go our way and not God's way. We naturally rebel against God's revelation of Jesus Christ. We're threatened by it, aren't we? Would you be honest and say, before coming to faith in Jesus, by God's grace, you were threatened by Jesus' kingship? You liked ruling your life. You liked doing everything. We liked doing everything for ourselves. But that's not the way of God's kingdom. There's a new king in town, amen? And his name is Jesus. Now, although the presence of the promised king, the Messiah, of the Old Testament meant rescue and restoration, healing and justice, those in positions of power were unwilling to step down. They were unwilling to step down. And then we have the wise men. Who were these guys? A bunch of wise guys. Who were these wise men? Verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Hey, where is he? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to what? We've come to worship him. Now, scholars agree that language, that the language, where are they from? They're from the east, indicates a homeland somewhere in Persia, Babylon, or Arabia. But when you look at the three gifts, what are the three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Most likely, their origin was Arabia. Even Justin Martyr, early church father, he wrote arguing that these guys were from Arabia. But who were they? The Magoi. That's the Greek word, the Magoi. They were high-ranking officials, men of great wisdom, likely priests or astronomers. Now, this is cool, and maybe you've not caught this before. Is this, is this the only biblical account where highly esteemed figures from a foreign land come to pay homage to a son of David? I don't think so. No. If you recall 1 Kings 10, 1 to 10, we have the Queen of Sheba. And she comes to behold the wisdom of of King Solomon. She comes bearing gifts, right? So this event in 1 Kings 10 foreshadows the visit of the Magoi. The Queen of Sheba, she came to bearing gifts of gold, spices, and precious stones. What we're seeing today in our passage is that Jesus is the greater son of David, come for the world. Amen? He came for the world. Recall Jesus' words recorded later in Matthew. This is Matthew 12, 41 to 42. It was after the wise men have come and worshipped Jesus. It says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 22, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And who's that? Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. This is further. Now, this is cool. This is really cool. I love Isaiah, or if you're British, David, Isaiah, right? Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 speaks of foreigners, foreign powers, the nations, Gentiles, streaming to the true king, the Messiah, in worship and praise. And what are we seeing? This is, this is massive. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. A promise in God's word. And then we come to Jesus, and what do we see? Fulfillment. Let me read Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, and then verse 6. This is really cool. Arise. Don't stand up. I'm reading the text. Everybody stands up. It would be great. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, everybody say nations. It's a text. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now check out verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Wow. <laughs> What's the point of all this? This juxtaposition between the response of Herod in Jerusalem and the wise men from the east. One more Kostenberger quote, Andreas Kostenberger. He says, the message is unmistakable. Even if Israel won't worship her long-awaited king, Gentiles will. Furthermore, this whole episode declares God's faithfulness to provide salvation for the nations as attested by the response of the wise men. So back to the wise men. Back to the, now this is good. This is going to be really helpful. Back to the wise men. These wise men from the east were responding to what? A couple of things. God's providential revelation in nature, right? The star, we still don't know what that was, but we know that God was in control guiding them to Jesus. But also Old Testament prophecy. They were obviously familiar with Old Testament prophecy. Verses 1 and 2, again, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his what? We saw a star. And when it rose and have come to worship him. And then verses 10 and 11, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. These men, they leave their home to pursue the king. They rejoice, they humble themselves, they worship, they offer Jesus costly gifts, and they, this is important, they risk their reputations, even their very lives, to see the king. These men understood the matchless worth of the one they came to see. This is the last question. What might we take away 
from the proper response to this revelation. Um, did Herod and others in Jerusalem respond appropriately? Say it in Spanish. No. The wise men did. What can we take away from the wise men's response to Jesus? Our worship of King Jesus, the promised king, the God king, the shepherd king who laid down his life for the sheep, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our shepherd king and our worship of our shepherd king is to be joyful. He's the Savior King, the promised one. It is to be expressive and sincere, costly, risky even, and evidenced by obedience. So I want us to unpack these quickly. Number one, our worship should be joyful. Verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, the wise men, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They've arrived! Woohoo! <laughs> when they saw the star, listen, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's like mega joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wow. Why did the wise men rejoice exceedingly with great joy because they had found the one that nature and scripture bears witness to. They've been drawn to the Savior King. Amen? Why should our worship be joyful? If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, you, me, we've been saved. We've been saved. We've been saved. We've been saved. We've been saved from eternal death, eternal separation. We've been saved. And that should result in joyful, joyful, exceedingly joyful praise. Amen? We've been justified. We're being sanctified. One day we'll be glorified. All because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And that should result in joyful, joyful praise. Number two. Our worship should be expressive and sincere. Verse 11. Now this is good. Listen to these two verbs. I'll try to italicize them with my tone. <laughs> and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down <laughs> and worshipped him. They fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They fell down. They didn't trip. That'd be embarrassing. I do that a lot. I have fallen down our stairs multiple times. That was just an aside. <laughs> but they fell down and worshipped. Now, Matthew's use of these two verbs is highly significant, and it's intentional. The verb to fall down is pipto. And you can think like, I'm tiptoeing and I fall down. So that's a good way to remember pipto means to fall down. But what does it mean to fall down? It means to prostrate oneself before another. It's used in the context of, and yes, worship. This is what you do when you're in the presence of one who is far superior to you. You piptoe. You fall down. And that's not all they did. They didn't just piptoe. They didn't just fall down. Next, we read that they worshipped proskuneo. 
proskuneo. It means to express by attitude and possibly by one's position, one's allegiance to and regard for deity. This verb is used in the context of divine worship. They did only what you do in the presence of God they worshipped. They fell down in awe. This one, this child is far superior to us. These were important figures, right? Oh, but we're nothing compared to him. And then they worshipped. This was no show, by the way. They weren't putting on airs. They weren't simply going through the motions. This was all in motion. This was all in motion. This was appropriate. How are we expressing worship toward the king today? So, their worship was joyful. Number two, expressive and sincere. Number three, costly. It was costly. The wise men left home and offered expensive gifts at the feet of the king. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost one day? Have you denied yourself? Now, many scholars address the significance and the symbolism of the three gifts offered to Jesus, which are what? This is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. David Platt notes, gold emphasized Jesus' royalty. Frankincense, his deity. Frankincense was used in various offerings to God. And myrrh, his humanity. Now, this is interesting. Myrrh, everybody say myrrh. It's like cows. I just wanted to hear it. Myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming. Did you know that? Myrrh was used in embalming, part of the burial process. It's interesting that at the cross, Jesus is offered what? Myrrh mixed with wine. I believe that the final gift that we see in our passage provides us with a foreshadowing of Jesus' death, why he came. Why did he come? He came to die. What does the shepherd king do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And I believe even this final gift, we see a foreshadowing of why he came. He came to die. When we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we must remember why he came. He came to die for his people, to save his people from their sins. But in order to do that, he had to lay his life down in our place. Amen? Amen. This is our ultimate grounds for worship. Risky. Their worship was risky. More important than their dignity and safety was responding appropriately to the true king. They disobeyed Herod. What did Herod say? Hey, when you're done, when you find him, you, you come and report back, right? Because I want to come and worship him. No, he didn't. He wanted to get rid of him. Do they obey Herod? No. Now, to disobey a king, I mean, is that a good idea to disobey a king? That's lunacy. It's not safe. However, Jesus was worth it. We know today that worshiping Jesus is not in vogue. It's not popular with culture. In fact, there's nothing more countercultural today than worshiping Jesus, giving him your allegiance. Are you willing to risk it all to follow Jesus? He's worth it. Amen? He's worth it. The last thing is worship evidence through obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. John 14, 15, right? 
our worship is to be evidenced through our obedience. We worship the Lord through our obedience. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So compare verse 9 with verse 12. Verse 9 reads, After listening to the king, Okay, we hear you, king. You told us to come back when we find out where this king is born, and, and we'll come back and tell you. what we. You know, this is like recon. But then... Verse 12, in being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by a different way. After their encounter with the Christ, they chose to obey God and not Herod. What makes Jesus worthy of our worship? He's God. He's the promised king. Again, this is revealed early on in the Gospels. And before that, in the Old Testament. Jesus, the God king, has come. Let's worship him. Amen? Let's worship him. I have five quick practice steps and application questions. I'm going to move through these quickly. If you want to take notes, you can, but just pay attention to this. Number one, Christmas is an invitation to come and see the king. Christmas is an invitation to come and see the king. How have you responded to King Jesus? Have you trusted in him for salvation? Church, how are we extending this invite to others? Are we inviting others to come and see this glorious king who laid down his life? For sinners like us. Number two, Christmas is a reminder of God's grace and mercy, his generosity. He has given us the ultimate gift of his son. And this gift, thankfully, has been made available to the world. He came for the nations. So how are we imitating his grace, his mercy, and his generosity in our own lives? Number three, Christmas is a reminder, and this has been the big point so far these past three weeks, Christmas is a reminder of God's faithfulness. Amen? How are we currently expressing our gratitude to God for his faithfulness to his saving promises? Number four, Christmas is a reminder, and the wise men get this, Christmas is a reminder of the matchless worth and beauty of Jesus. How are we currently worshiping the king? Is it seen in our day-to-day lives? Christ has been revealed to us through the word of God. How have we responded? How should we continue to respond? And number five, is our worship joyful? Is it expressive and sincere? Is it costly? Is it risky? And is it evidenced by our obedience? And then how can we grow here? You know, I've had the privilege of doing ministry all over the world, Africa, Europe, Central America. And do you know what you see when you travel the world? You see the church. You see believers. And you see God's heart for the nations. The gospel has gone forward. Amen? <clears throat> what we're going to do next week, it's going to be interesting. It's probably going to surprise all of you. It's fine. I don't, I don't care about that. We're going to be in God's word, but we're going to be at the very end of Matthew. We're going to come back to Matthew 28. And we're going to see how all these themes we've looked at they reappear in the Great Commission. So Matthew 1 and 2 is all about God's rescue mission for the world through the birth of Jesus. Amen? And how does the gospel end? That mission continues through his church, his spirit-filled people. So at Christmas time, we should think about and praise God for his mission through his son. But we should also be reminded that we have a part to play in that mission as well. Amen? Those who have responded appropriately are called to invite others to follow the king, to make disciples. So let's do that. And I'm, I'm excited. 
I've mentioned this before. I'm going to pray. At Christmas time, family gathers. Oftentimes, family that you might not like, right? But you've got to see them. And hopefully you want to see them, right? But if you're like me, at Christmas time, you're going to inevitably be around people who might not know the Lord. So use that opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Why we celebrate Christmas. The mission of God through His Son, Jesus. And the fact that we as Christians are called to make disciples by making that good news known. Amen? So let's make it known. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your faithfulness. You made glorious, grandiose promises in the Old Testament concerning a king, a savior, the spirit, new creation, rescue, forgiveness of sins, God with us. And then at the coming of your son, Father, we see all these promises coming true. And for that, we say thank you. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are good. You made glorious, gracious promises toward and for sinners like us. Yes, for your glory, but also for our good. And as recipients of these good news promises, Father, we say thank you. And I pray as we think about your mission through your Son, that we'd be excited to join in your mission of making disciples by continuing to make this good news announcement known to the world around us that the King has come and we're not Him. The Savior has come and we need Him. And His name is Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. We thank you that in you alone is salvation and peace with God. And I pray, Father, again, that you would give us incredible opportunities over these next few days and weeks to announce this good news. Save the lost, our lost family and friends and neighbors for your glory and their good and our joy. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.